With the advent of the COVID pandemic, a die-hard segment of society, anti-maskers and anti-vaxxers have leaned hard on their slogan, My Body, My Choice. Some country dwellers now have adopted a variation of that die-hard vow, My Land, My Choice. But, like it or not, land use and ecological concerns are creeping up around them even out in the areas where septic tanks and individual water wells reign. Here's John Graves now in his book, From a Limestone Ledge, exploring that dynamic on the bookshelf. Chapter 17 is entitled, One's Own Soul Ground. Possibly because of the more or less steady, change-fostered bewilderment that is our modern lot, a good many of us have developed the habit of jamming one another, and sometimes, for that matter, ourselves, into convenient categories like young executive, welfare minority, gay, middle-class housewife, hard hat, hippie, educated brown, gun nut, used car salesman, and so forth. The media and the PR industry assist this trend with a zeal born of their veneration for all usable clichés and lumpings, and the categories have the further advantage of being stackable, as in gay, hard-hatted gun nut. In regard to us country dwellers, city types often cherish a classification called hick, redneck, sturdy peasant, or something of that order, which makes them feel more easy of mind when they stray beyond the developments and the junkyards and see actual human beings out here in the fields and pastures and seated beneath the overhangs of crossroad filling stations. It won't really work, of course, any more than most of the other categories will, stackable or not, for on closer scrutiny, the sturdy peasants, like, say, middle-class housewives, subdivide into so many disorderly groupings that the would-be categorizer is swiftly again dunked in bewilderment. However, one broad class of country people may be worth eyeing separately, at any rate for certain purposes. Its members can be pleasant or grouchy, slow or bright, young or old, short or tall, or poor or rich, possessed of thousands of spreading acres or modest homestead tracts. But they're all possessed of something in the way of rural real estate. They are landowners, with a capital L, a fact which bestows on most of them at least one shared conviction, or illusion. They believe they not only own, but actually govern whatever patch of the earth's crusty surface to which title has been vouchsafed them by inheritance, gift, or purchase. They are at one with W.S. Blunt's old squire, who thought he was his own sole king upon his own sole ground. This sovereignty is a mighty peril these days, or at least many of its holders think it is, the shift of political potency to urban areas, begun with the reapportionment of legislative and congressional districts years ago and reflecting a tremendous demographic change, is now resulting in a rash of countryward-aimed regulations and laws that presume to tell landowners quite a bit more than they're used to hearing about what they can or can't do on their land. Most, being ecological or humanitarian in drift, intended to abate pollution, preserve wildlife, better the lot of migrant workers, and so on, the rural antagonisms they arouse is directed not only at the government entities that seek to enforce them, the EPA, OSHA, ESSA, and so forth, but at the city-bred environmentalists and liberals whose inclinations they express. 
The stud buzzard bugaboo of all, still only a threatening rumor in most places, is land use regulation, whereby the countryside would be zoned in effect and proper employment of its parts prescribed by urban fiat. Embattled, or seeing themselves so, the sturdy peasants close ranks and espout tight positions that some of them might not have cared for just a few years since. I used to know, for instance, quite a few intelligent, born-and-bred countrymen who could see as clearly as any Sierra clubber the dangerous wrongfulness of such wholesale poisons as the chlorinated hydrocarbon insecticides and varmint-killing 1080. But since federal restrictions have been put on their use, these free spirits seem either to have shut up or to have joined the rural chorus singing harmoniously of deprivation. The trend shows up in an admirable ranching newspaper to which I subscribe, published in San Angelo, which not only gives a good picture of the state of the world as it affects cattle, sheep, and goat husbandry week by week, but also prints a fair amount of fine, dry, tough West Texas humor and some excellent stuff on range management and sidelights of southwestern history. And sprinkled through its pages also, you find news items, and sometimes longish, well-researched articles relating to one phase or another of the government's determination to foul up ranchers' established ways of doing things, whether in terms of predator control, a ban on the use of 245T, the curtailment of grazing leases on public lands in New Mexico or whatever, replete with examples of often quite real bureaucratic ineptitude and critical by implication or otherwise of the urban electorate that establishes bureaucrats' functions and urges them on in their lunacy, these articles accurately mirror the angers and apprehensions of the paper's readership. It's hard to say how much of this is really new. Slightly paranoid antipathy toward outsiders, especially city outsiders, has never been far below the surface in us rustics since mud-brick civilization began, and whether it's getting worse nowadays is moot. One way or the other, it amounts to little in comparison with the other tensions that currently rack all people between sexes, races, generations, regions, nations. But it can be both fascinating and a bit worrisome if you stand close enough to it and are a sort of a hybrid city rustic yourself. Living on the land most of the time, I notice it mainly in the changing feeling of countrymen, including that part of myself toward the outsiders that we actually see in our own precincts, the hunters and fishermen and geologizers and similar wanderers who favor us intermittently with their presence. Some few landowners are still quite easygoing, tolerating everything from strayed bulls and uninvited hunters to brash tristers and arrowhead seekers as mere facts of life, not worth roiling one's stomach acids about unless they do notable damage to pastures, crops, or livestock. Others of my ilk would like to be that benign, but have been forced by experience into wariness, particularly of strangers with weapons. And still others bring to the exercise of ownership the forthright territoriality of red hornets and doberman pinchers, resenting and resisting all trespass. Here in Texas, many old line ranchers have been thus hotly jealous of their frontiers, which seems a bit strange in view of the open-range origins of their trade, but may well trace back to the bitter fence-war era of the 1880s, when barbed wire, Bob War, 
brought the concept of private land ownership quite abruptly to our ancestral prairies, and anyone who wanted to hold on to his slice of them had better wax fiercely possessive. Within my lifetime, in days of cheaper help and fewer effete scruples, the boundary fences of certain large ranches were still patrolled by armed, mounted men under orders, it was said, and widely believed, to ventilate intruders on sight, and dramatic, whether true or not, were the tales about persons who had crawled through those fences and had never been seen again. Of late, such princeliness has grown more costly and has been perhaps further weakened by a thinning of fiber in the old prince's inheritors. But the gist of the attitude lingers down, and to this day in most ranching sections not many savvy roamers will cross even three rusty strands of wire drooping between rotten posts without knowing who holds the other side in fee simple and how he'll react to their presence if he sees them. Having grown up around such ways, I remember being surprised in old world places by the apparent freedom with which villagers and landless countrymen, even city vacationers, ranged through the holdings of their patrician compatriots, picnicking, gathering deadwood fuel and wild fruits and nuts and herbs and fungi and otherwise disporting themselves. A closer look generally reveals some fairly ferocious rules relating to the sacrosanctity of game, fish, crops, and a few other things, given force by what was left of a class structure and the customs of a thousand years or more. Even so, it was impressive, and except among a few rule-resistant gypsies and poachers, it worked. Vestiges of that sort of tolerance remains in some of our older farmer regions, where live most of the easy-going landowners I've mentioned. But there are areas, like much of Europe, where people have had several or many generations to learn to stay off one another's nerves through observance of unwritten rules, and it takes only a few outsiders ignorant of the rules to blow the whole pattern to pieces. And since outsiders proliferate practically everywhere in these times of mobility, that is, sometimes upward, but more often sidewise, the aisles of rural tolerance tend to shrink and vanish. When I was young and used to go quail shooting with my father and uncles in a long-settled part of South Texas, you could stop at almost any farm or small ranch and ask about hunting there, and if you had minimally passable manners and had recently bathed and shaved, you were as often as not welcomed and told, sure, go ahead. Now I fear you'd meet with little but curt or at best matter-of-fact rebuff, maybe softened a mite by the information that the place's hunting has been leased. This leasing, unknown a few decades back except in deer sections but widespread now, does bring landowners some extra cash each year, but the main reason most of them like it is that it limits interlopers to a few known individuals and reestablishes a set of rules and customs. Unknown individuals are the losers, at least those of them with an urge to percolate about the landscape, and they have a harder time in Texas than in those other western states with vast reaches of public land for recreational use by one and all. Nimrods suffer most, for sturdy peasants have convenient stereotype classifications also, and for most of them the city hunter is a disquieting figure. I've been a hunter all my life and will likely remain one for as much of the rest of it as physical condition permits, and I have a good many hunters for friends, 
most of them mild and skillful men with a knowledge of country ways. But I find it takes a major effort these days to identify with the hunting clan at large, being a landowner myself, and remembering three or four of my beasts that have been perforated over the years by accident or intention, as well as having listened over and over to fellow countrymen's recounts of tromped-down fences, gates disastrously left open, grain and hay crops squashed and rutted by ATVs, tin barns or cisterns or windmills riddled with holes, seven-millimeter magnum slugs whining by someone's spouse's left ear as she hangs out the wash, and so on. Years ago, I knew slightly a venerable rancher far to the west, who with the sole help of his spare wife ran cattle on a swatch of remote tough foothills and low mountains where pronghorns and mule deer ranged. He was cranky, but sociable enough, as people in thinly inhabited regions inclined toward being, and had seldom minded having hunters on his land if he knew them or liked their looks. But one morning early, a pair of beefy unknowns came down to his entrance road in a new Continental, parked it outside his yard fence where the road turned into a rocky jeep trail, took out rifles and lunch bags and aimed themselves for the hills without so much as a glance toward the house. He came out. Where are you fellas headed? he asked. They stopped and looked around. Going hunting, the bigger one said. Maybe you are and maybe you ain't. The hell we ain't, old-timer, said the big one, and levered a cartridge into the chamber of his gun, though without pointing it in any particular direction. I see, said the rancher, stroking his jaw. Well, I guess you will if you want to, because I ain't very big on killing or getting killed, but I'll tell you one thing. Like what? Like I got pert near a case of thirty-thirty shells in the bedroom, and not a damn thing to do but just sit here on the front steps all day and shoot holes in that car. I bet I can even bust the engine block if I keep on hitting one place. They studied him, mumbled a bit between themselves, then got back into the big sedan and drove off, leaving behind some new city hunter material for local lore to d digest. By the time I knew him, the old man had quit letting anybody hunt on that ranch, even friends. So had most of his neighbors. But hunters, while they're a prime source of rural qualms, are only one form of alien invader, and your truly obsessed landowner gets just about as upset over some other forms as well. The visitation of male adolescents, for example, are seldom regarded with joy even when they leave the customary 22 at home running usually in small packs, charged with directionless energy, given horrid mobility by the internal combustion engine, they egg one another on in senselessness, and when confronted with an isolated homestead whose owners are away, can on occasion create a degree of chaos that Attila's lads would not at all mind claiming. Yes, I know all about the good kids around, but I'm retailing a body of legend with, unfortunately, some roots in fact. Sometimes their spore can be rather interesting. At the country place outside Fort Worth, where we used to live, such a troop came around one day in our absence, let the locked house alone except for hurling rocks through a couple of windows and splintering some porch furniture, but at the barn dumped out the contents of every box and crate they could find. 
They left most of the stuff strewn where it fell, but lugged fourteen musty volumes of Sir Walter Scott's prose works fifty yards away to throw them into a stock trough, whose float they thoughtfully broke off so that the valve was still spouting water when we got back two days later. With plenty of other books around the barn, I wondered why the master of Abbotsford had thus been favored, and conjured up the image of a frail, stern, hated, spinster high school teacher musing out the last stages of the Gothic Southern dream, trying to run Ivanhoe and the Bride of Lammermoor into barbaric hot-rod brains and evoking this slantwise revenge. I didn't wonder why we had been thus favored. It was because, like the mountains, we were there. So it is that many of us benevolent lordlings who would like to be tolerant in the old-world manner grow less hospitable year by year, while others who were always inclined toward tight awareness of their dominion became little short of rabid. Probably the feistiest specimens are those with land bordered by parks, reservoirs, highways, and other accessible havens, from which incursions can and do proceed, and a current emphasis on public outdoor recreation is dimly viewed among them. One fellow I know of, who has parlayed a hilly, rather small holding into a species of gold mine by crisscrossing it with dirt bike trails and charging city cyclists five dollars a head to play there on weekends, is hardly spoken to by his deaf and neighbors anymore. Jeffersonian in their essence, they have come to agree in at least one respect with their patron figure's arch-antithesis, A. Hamilton. Your public, sir, is a great beast. A battleground that has shaped up in recent years lies along Texas rivers, state-owned streams which twenty years ago were little frequented by anyone but people living beside them and a few local anglers. They have now become pleasure routes, at least when they're flowing and the mosquitoes aren't too bad, for numerous canoes and kayaks and rubber rafts. The enthusiasts who paddle these craft are mainly nature-minded and innocuous, but they are anathema to riverbank landowners with a lifetime behind them of regarding these abutting waters as their own and not having to fret about fires and racket and litter in the bottomlands. The conflict is often unpleasant, but occasionally somewhat funny, as when an ardent canoeist of my acquaintance, a conservative and, in fact, fairly testy landowner himself, though city-based, was menaced in his camp on the Frio one morning by an enraged lady goat rancher with a gun. I wasn't even inside her fence, but I told her I had a ranch too and understood how she felt, my friend reported, disgruntled and aggrieved. But the crazy old biddy kept on waving that Model 94 and hollering she didn't care what I understood. Just get the hell out of there. It would be nice to end this discussion on a hopeful note, envisioning some sort of rapprochement between the redneck son of the soil and his white-naped urban counterpart, wherein each would share out the best of what his own world has to offer. Certainly the homogenizing influence of things like TV and the readiness with which countrymen flow cityward and urbanites when able toward the land these days should militate in favor of better relations. In pretty terrain, within a couple of hours' driving distance of large cities, much acreage is owned absentee by town folk who visited on the weekends and later settled there in retirement. And the major fact of this century of change, seen sometimes as tragic, has been the enormous migration of country people to metropolises. 
With such mixing, it would seem the rough edges ought to wear off of old enmities and suspicions. In some ways, I guess they do, but there are complications. For one thing, assimilation at the other end of the migratory route isn't always what the migrants have in mind. City landowners often remain city people in manners and attitudes, and most of all in the opinion of neighboring rurals. And the lonesome misfit plight of erstwhile farmers and their womenfolk on the streets of Detroit City and other magnetic herbs is a poignant major theme of country music. Another trouble is that many of those who do manage to shoulder their way through to acceptance in their new surroundings tend to take on protective coloration and to look back at where they came from in distaste. Country women transplanted to Careerum or suburbia, for instance, have a frequent scorn of rural ways, and some of the most violently possessive, snuff-dippingly rustic landowners I've known have done their growing up in town and had made money there with which to buy their farms or ranches. And if, as I seem to discern, the pitch of paranoia has been rising a note or two out here on the hills and prairies, it appears to be matched by a touch of the same shrill ailment among the metropolitans in relation to us peasants, as demonstrated not only by laws and regulations that chew on what countrymen see as their rights, but also, more painfully perhaps, by the great urban success of bucolic scare figures like the murderous yokels of Easy Rider and Deliverance's buggerly backwoodsman. Maybe this is our hopeful note, that human difference and variousness do hang on in spite of all. Obviously, at any rate, everything can't be wrong in a world where such honorably ancient dislikes and mistrusts retain their traditional force. This is Tom Bacon with a little background on this just-finished chapter by John Graves. He took the title, One's Own Soul Ground, from a poem written in the late 1800s by a truly extraordinary Britisher named Wilfred Scowen Blunt, a real wild man, almost a caricature of a Renaissance man. Blunt was an adventurer, a political maverick, a polemicist, for many years an envoy in the British Foreign Service, a drug addict, a lecher, and a poet. He and his wife also probably saved the pure-blood Arabian horse breed from extinction with an equine breeding farm in Cairo, Egypt. Blunt was a rabid, even sometimes a violent, anti-imperialist at a time when Britain's imperial power was at its zenith. He espoused and went to jail for Irish independence when London's overlords would not even entertain the idea. He wrote erotic poetry and lived out his fantasies by attracting several mistresses. He even tried to move one of his paramours into his house, which, not surprisingly, caused his wife to cry enough and file for divorce. During most of his adult life, Blunt earned a precarious income by his writing. The poem chosen by Graves to underpin his musings about the rural mindset was entitled Old Squire, in which Blunt wrote of riding at dawn, as he put it, in the joyous morning air of the calm of the early fields, the ducks asleep by the lake, and the quiet hour which nature yields before mankind is awake. That's the time, he wrote, when a rural dweller can think he is his own sole king upon his own sole ground. 
We hope you're enjoying Graves' book, From the Limestone Ledge, published by the University of Texas Press, and we hope you'll join us for the next and final chapter here on the bookshelf, Vern Windham, executive producer. (music) 